Well, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We've come upon a new section in this masterful book about wise living in a fallen world. If you've been with us, you know that Solomon starts the book with a realistic view of life, not a pessimistic view, a realistic view of life. And then he ends the book with, with where to find hope. God will bring everything into judgment. He'll make right what is, is wrong. And then mingled between the introduction and the end are, are several golden keys that, that opens wisdom's door. And that door leads to true enjoyment in a Genesis 3 world. We live under the curse, and it is, it's bad, it's frustrating, sometimes it feels futile, but God has given us good gifts to, to enjoy. And only Christians can actually enjoy those gifts. And I'm going to show you why this morning from, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Life here and now is under a curse. Things that are crooked cannot be made straight. The way things are, are not the way they're supposed to be. And when you, when you look at this world for meaning, all you're going to find is, a, is an empty pantry. Solomon says its best days are frustrating. Its greatest feats seem futile. Its brightest minds end up in the, the same ground with, the, with the, the ignorant ones. And Solomon has proven this by laying out a very methodical plan and then, and then providing a, a detailed record of his pursuit. Solomon has explored both work and wisdom, both doing and thinking. He has plumbed the depths of, of pleasure, prosperity, personal success, philosophy, even, even ignorance, and, and also knowledge. He looked high and low, but everywhere Solomon looked, he, he found no answer he, for the curse. In fact, what he found was the curse. And he ends his search with, with this conclusion in chapter 2, verses 24 through, through 26. There is nothing good in a man to eat and drink and to tell himself his labor is good. This also I've seen is from the hand of God. Last week we saw Solomon explained why mankind cannot find satisfaction in this world. And he gave us our first glimpse of, of hope, the first golden key, if you will. As part of the curse, God has removed our ability, He's taken out our ability to find complete satisfaction without Him. And that's why you search and search and you don't find what you're looking for and it always ends up empty and you, you have no peace. Maybe you're searching this morning and God wants to finally show you where, where to find the answer and that answer is in Jesus Christ. When we're without God, we can find no satisfaction. But when we come to an end of our ceaseless search through Jesus Christ, we find complete satisfaction in Him. And once we do, God restores our ability to find pleasure in the gifts that He's given in this world. He's granted to His followers the ability to enjoy the good things of life. He takes it away from mankind in the curse, so, so they'll not actually be satisfied. They're, they're on an endless search, and that's what God actually uses to, to bring them to Himself. And then once 
he, he brings you to Jesus Christ, then He replaces that ability to find satisfaction because you're satisfied in Him and then you can enjoy His good gifts. That's, that's Solomon's conclusion at the end of, of chapter 2. And we've been given wisdom and knowledge and, and joy. It won't be like what, what awaits us in, in heaven. We'll still face a measure of frustration from the curse, but, but it won't be like it was whenever you were an unbeliever, when you could find a rest for your soul. Well, today, Solomon is going to help us even further by giving us the tools that we need to operate in a crooked and, and cursed world. And he starts with the most important one. The most important tool is God's sovereignty. And that's what he covers in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This new section actually begins chapter 3 and it ends in chapter 5. It, it covers three chapters. And Warren Wearsby said you can outline chapters 3 through 5 with, with four looks. There's a look up at God's sovereignty in chapter 3, verses 1 through, through 8. There's a look within at what God has placed in your heart in verses 9 through 15. There's a look around at all the injustice. We'll, we'll get to that next week. And then, then there's a look beyond in chapter 5, and that, that shows us how to, how to walk. And in this first section that we're going to, to look at today, Solomon teaches us the most essential tool that we need to operate in a broken world, and that's God's grip of all that happens in time. And as believers, you can't escape the curse, but you can learn to live wisely and enjoy the gifts that God has given. And there are many to enjoy, but you can't enjoy them. If you're fretting over life, if you're, if you're wobbling over who's in control, am I or, or is someone else? And so after completing his desperate search, Solomon points us to the one place that we can find stability in a Genesis 3 world, and that is God. Solomon says God is absolutely, totally sovereign over all things, all people, all time, and most importantly for his topic, he is sovereign over all of the curse. There is not an atom in the universe that is not operating under Christ's supremacy this morning. Or ever has been, nor ever will be. You see, Solomon understands if you're going to live in a world where things are crooked and you can't straighten them, with all the effects of the curse, one of the, one of the greatest gifts that, that He can give us, that God can give us to help us live, is an understanding that God's got the whole world in the palm of His hand. You, did you sing that song as a little child? It will allow you to rest in all of the areas where you see the curse so clearly and in the areas where you don't see the curse coming. And it waylays you. It is the steadying doctrine for believers living in a, in a falling world. But if you fail to grasp it or misunderstand it, you're going to get off track very, very quickly while you're, while you're living in a Genesis 3 world. If you have a wrong view of God's sovereignty, you will experience even greater frustration in life. You'll spend the majority of your life asking why questions when you should be asking how questions. That's what we ask, isn't it? Why? I mean, we come out of the womb asking why. You have a child, your own, or a grandchild. Why is the sky blue? Why did that person do that? Why does Chick-fil-A have a chicken on the side of their cup? Why? 
All kinds of questions. We're born to ask it. God tells us He created the world and we say, why? He allowed the fall and we say, why? And there are more troubling why questions. Personally troubling why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why did I get sick? Why did she die? Why is there evil? Why is there so little satisfaction in the world? And so Solomon writes the first 15 verses of chapter chapter 3 to replace your interrogative. (laughs) He wants you to move you from why to, to how. He wants you to stop asking God, why is this happening? He's already answered that. It's a Genesis 3 world. And he wants you to start asking God, how can I submit to you in this matter? How can I trust you and worship you in life under the sun that you control? And the lesson that helps you do that above everything else is to understand God's grip on everything. Isn't it comforting to know that God's got this? (laughs) And besides, even if you knew the answer to why, it wouldn't help you rest because you're too limited to understand it and you couldn't change it anyway. The good news is that you're not too limited to trust Him and to rest in His hand regardless of the why. Well, let's look at the the lesson. Solomon says there are actually six things that, that you need to understand about God's grip that help you live in a Genesis 3 world. Six beliefs about God's grip of time, or you could insert in there God's sovereignty, that help you live in a Genesis 3 world. He says God's grip is noticeably absolute in verses 1 through 8. He says God's grip is eternally complete in verses 9 through 11. It's purposely inexplicable. It's delightfully good. It's worshipfully durable. And it's unquestionably immutable. And that's how he rounds it out in verse 15. Let's look at the first one. He says God's grip of time is noticeably absolute. Look, if you would, at verse verse 1. If you come to know Jesus Christ and the quest for meaning is ended in Him, that's wonderful, but the wisdom you need to live wisely begins with God's unqualified control of this world. Verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Solomon begins by saying God's sovereignty is absolute. One commentator said he doesn't even ask you if you're a Calvinist. He just tells you God's in control. Right here in verse 1. And this begins with probably the most well-known poem in all of Ecclesiastes. You may have it hanging on your wall like we do, but Solomon wants you to write it on the dashboard of your life to, to remind you as you're driving through it that God is, is in control. And don't take all of these statements in this beautiful poem, a time for this and a time for that. Don't take them as prescriptions. They're pronouncements. Solomon is not saying this is what you do. He's saying this is what life looks like. He's not prescribing, he's describing or describing the life, life under the curse. God's surely not commanding birth or, or death. He, he's not saying, as you live, make sure that war breaks out, right? 
He's not teaching us what people ought to do, but describing situations that they will face in a, in a fallen world, and God has every one of them in His grasp, is what Solomon says in verse 1. There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under, under heaven. The first part of that verse makes it clear Solomon includes everything under the sun, and the second statement expands on it. There's an appointed time for everything, no exceptions. And more specifically, every activity that's under the sun. That's what the second half of that verse literally means. And God's the one who, who appoints them. He even starts with activities that human beings have, have no control over. There's a time to give birth. You have control over what you do to bring about birth, but not even that always opens the, the womb unless God does that. But you don't have the control over when birth comes. You surely don't have control over when you die. And the verse couldn't be plainer as far as God's absolute control over everything. But the context, think of the context. It's going to help you understand what to do with this truth. Why is Solomon talking about God's sovereignty in chapter 3, in the middle of this, of this book? Well, it's, it's wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So, it's written to gain wisdom, to be wise or to have skill in living. And this book is not only wisdom literature, but specifically to grant us wisdom while we're living under the curse. Do you see that? So whatever Solomon wants us to learn about God's control, it so will become wise or skilled at living in a fallen world. And he says the wisdom that you need to live under the curse is God is absolutely sovereign. He is in complete control of, of everything. If you don't understand that, even if you can't comprehend it, you're going to be constantly thrown off by calamity and the effects of the curse. If you think things come, that come under the sun are random acts or something God's not controlling, you're going to either go insane or you're going to prop up some unstable rationalization that makes it fit into your little pea brain, and then when real calamity comes, it's going to topple like a, like a house of, of cards. You're unable to stand on it. And while Bible, the Bible is clear that, that God cannot be blamed for sin, it's very clear that there are no gaps in His sovereignty. Otherwise, evil or the devil or sin are sovereign. And Solomon says if God's not in control, something else is. And that's a more terrifying thought than grappling with how to reconcile sin with God's control or evil with, with God's goodness. Someone or something rules and reigns over the, over the universe. Either that's a good God who sometimes allows things that we can't understand, or it's man, or it's sin, or it's evil that, that can do things that God can't stop. And that's an even more terrifying thought. And if you think you're getting God off the hook by saying He's limiting His sovereignty to, to keep Him from seeming responsible for evil, that doesn't help Him at all either. First, He doesn't need your help to do that. But secondly, he make, you make it worse. You may think human freedom is more understandable than God being sovereign, but it's not. It doesn't get God off the hook. He still knew everything and still set it all in motion. He still could have intervened and He didn't. Or worse, he wasn't able to, as some people believe. But only now you've made a God who is good, but he's also impotent. Think about it. 
Have you ever asked the question, if God knew that mankind was going to fall before He created, why didn't He stop them? Why did God put the tree in the middle of the, of the garden of, of Edom if he, Eden if He knew what Adam and Eve were, were going to do? You, you say, well, well, He did that to let man have a choice. Man clearly had a choice. Adam and Eve were the only two individuals that were absolutely innocent. They weren't tainted by sin. But that doesn't really fix anything. It seems to explain one thing in your mind, man's freedom, but it creates another question. Why did a loving God do that in the first place? And why didn't He intervene if He's omniscient and, and He's good? And you'll play that game until you rest in what the Bible says regardless of whether you can understand it. And Solomon says, I have a much wiser plan. It's to trust that God's grip is absolute. And then he says, let me demonstrate it. And so in verse 2 through, through verse 8, Solomon lists 14 pairs of events that fall under his control. Look, if you would, at verse 2. I'm not going to read all of this because Nathan did an excellent job for us. There's a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. And he goes on through 14 pairs of events. And Solomon says, God appoints all of these. Notice that they're extremes. Birth and death. Planting and plucking up. Killing and, and healing. And what Solomon means by that is it covers both ends and then everything in between. Weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing. Of course, only if you sway and as long as you don't shimmy, then that's okay, all right? <clears throat> Throw and gather, embrace and refrain, gaining and losing, rending and mending, silent and speaking, love and hate, war and peace. See, even the novelist copied from Solomon. Solomon's point is, if God controls the extremes, then He controls everything in between. And notice, some of these events are results of the fall. Do you see that? Death, killing, mourning, weeping, war. None of those were there prior to, to the fall. None of those were there in the Garden of Eden before Genesis 3. But Solomon says, even now, in a Genesis 3 world, God's grip envelops them all. God is not responsible for sin, but He controls it. God is not the author of evil, but He ordains it. You see, calamity and difficulties are going to come in a fallen world. Isn't it comforting to know that God is sovereign over all of them? Let me illustrate to you how how that helps you live in a, in a cursed world. Where did Job trust when calamity came knocking at his door? It, it didn't just knock, did it? I mean, it, it blew the house down, literally. Where did Job turn? Well, we know where his wife turned. Where did Job turn? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped grief, mourning, difficulty... Job's not saying, oh, well, God's sovereign, so it really doesn't matter that my kids died. But what did he do? Where did he go? 
He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Listen to what he says to God. This is a prayer to God. He says, God, you're sovereign. You have the right to give and you have the right to take away what was yours to begin with. And you're good. Blessed be your name, so I will not sin with unbelief or blame you. That's where he plants his flag when the fire falls. And that's where you rest when you face the curse, wherever it comes from. Isn't it comforting? And you say, yes, it is. But I have one of those why questions creeping into into my mind. If God is in control of everything, then why do anything myself? Why pray? Why obey? I mean, if God's going to do what He's going to do, then, then doesn't that just make everyone a puppet? But once again, Solomon anticipates our thoughts. Look, if you would, at verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given to the sons of men, with which they occupy themselves. You see what Solomon's asking? Solomon says God is in absolute control over all of these events, all the extremes and everything in between, and it leads him to a question. Well, if this is true, that God's a, God appoints a time for everything, then why work? What's the profit? What's the, what's the point? I've kept watch on the task which God's assigned. I've studied how these things play out. I've thought deeply about this. Emphasis is God's what God assigns to men. Solomon says he studied the whole life of man, and he says, what's the gain? If it's all predetermined, then, then what profit is there? You've asked that question, haven't you? <laughs> and then he gives the answer. And it's not fatalism. It's not that we're all robots. Look at verse 11. Here's number two. Solomon says God's grip of time is complete. It's perfect. It's complete. Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate or beautiful, literally beautiful, that's the correct translation, in its time. Dr. Joel James says, Solomon sees right through the errors of fatalism and what he sees is beauty. And that's what he wants you to see as well. Solomon's answer to this common, to common question, the common question, if God is sovereign, then what's the use is God will make everything beautiful in its time. He says you're only looking at part of the picture. And so you're thinking wrongly. Verse 11 is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. And I know all the stories about how everybody misuses the verse, but the verse is in the Bible. And it's a great comfort if you use it properly. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. That's weakness from the fall. For we do not know how to pray as we should. That's also from the fall. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the, to the will of God. And we know, we're confident, 
that God causes all things to work together for good to those who, who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say everything that comes is good. He says God will make all things beautiful in its time. And so Paul says to all of that, then what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's for us in the curse, if, if He's got a grip on everything, then, then what's there to worry about? Paul saw God's sovereignty as a comfort in the curse. Not something that leads us to curl up in a fetal position and grow moldy mushrooms on our wheels and not obey and, and, and just say, well, whatever will be, will be. Solomon says God's grip of time is complete. You work, and God overworks. He makes things, or you make things, and He makes all things beautiful in His time, which is His time. And Solomon reminds us God's sovereignty can't be looked at in a moment or only here. It must be viewed from eternity, and, and you can't see that far, and I can't see that far. And if you try to evaluate things by looking only from, from your point of view, you're going to conclude it's futile, it's, it's fatalistic. I'm looking at my circumstances, Pastor, and I don't see how this is good. It, it, it seems futile, it seems fatalistic, because you're looking with an incomplete picture. You don't have the same vantage point that God does. So stop evaluating what He's doing or thinking that, that, that you can see better. When you do that, you're, you're like the toddler that, that can't see atop the table but is telling mom how to set it or telling her whether it looks good. You're like the guy in the Thanksgiving parade somewhere in the tuba section of the marching brand trying to tell the, the announcers high above the whole parade which float is coming next and what's the order of things. You can't see that far. Solomon says God knows it all. He sees it all. He controls it all. And He will make it all beautiful when He's done with it, which is in His time. You look at a blind child and say, that doesn't look beautiful. But God sees that child in John 9 with His clock. And He sees beauty because He can see the moment when Jesus will come by and heal Him and declare His deity. And God's clock runs with eternal hands. And his plans need no corrections or amendments. Christian, don't judge what God is doing with your feeble eyes and your weak mind. He's far beyond your ability to find out. And as Paul says, who are we to question the Almighty anyway? And besides that, you don't want to be in control. You don't want the freedom to walk outside of God's sovereignty. Only God has the wisdom to take all the pieces and weave them together into a masterpiece that's good and beautiful. And only God has the goodness to make that, make that picture operate even in the curse. And you say, okay, I agree. I mean, I can't argue, it's right there. But I still have some questions. So do I. And so did Solomon, and he explains exactly why you have those questions in the, in the next verse. Number three, Solomon teaches us that God's grip of time is purposefully, purposefully inexplicable. Look, if you would, at the second half of verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in his time. 
He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. There's an appointed time in verses 1 through 8. There's a there's God completing or a beautifying time in verses 9 through 11a. And then and the questions that come up in between are part of God's plan as well. That's what verse 11b says. You say, okay, God's sovereign, and while I can't see what what He will do eventually, I sure could handle it better if I knew what He was doing or why He was doing it, right? God's God. I know He allowed it, but I would do much better if I knew why He allowed it. That's the question that comes in your heart. Solomon knows you again because we all are the same. And that's exactly why he's addressing this in verse 11. First, he tells us why we feel this way. And he says it's because God has put eternity in our hearts. Verse 11. He has also, that's God, He has made everything beautiful in His time. He has also set eternity in our hearts. Solomon says God set eternity in your heart. And that's why you ask why. You were created to live forever. But now you're relegated to limitations that the curse brings. You still have the questions. You still want to see beyond this life and how it will end. You still want to, you still want to understand, but, but you don't get the answer now. And that's part of the curse. Here's the second golden key that, that Solomon gives to, to open the door of wisdom as you're living in this, in this fallen world. There are two reasons that you find frustration. Number one was at the end of chapter chapter two. Part of the curse, God removed your ability to find to find satisfaction, to be completely satisfied in this world. He's removed our capacity to find that apart from Him. And now Solomon adds, we were created to be permanent in a temporary world. This world's passing away. And that frustrates us. We have questions. And like before. God's behind this limitation. He was behind the limitation of finding satisfaction. And now Solomon says he's behind the limitation of finding out. Look at what else he says. He's put eternity in the heart of man, yet so that the result of that is that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. You can't see the whole picture. You see that? Solomon tells us it's part of the fall. We can't figure it out this side of heaven. And that's God's plan. He's placed the desire to see things complete, to know the plan, and yet because of the curse we don't, we can't. And Solomon says we must rest in the fact that that he does. See, the fall is way worse than we thought. I mean, it's bad that you die. It's bad that you're separated from God eternally. That's... It's probably the worst. But while you're living, the the, the curse, the fall has has an effect. What did the devil promise Eve? And what did did the devil promise Adam? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be really, really smart, aren't you? You're going to be wise. You're going to know way more than, than what God is actually restricting from you right now. He's keeping things back. If you, if you just do this, 
then you'll know so much more. And what was the actual result? We know less. <laughs> we find less satisfaction. We know less than we did before because Satan's a liar. And you want to know what God is doing and that desire comes through the roof when, when hardship falls in your life, doesn't it? And you say, well, why did God do that? Well, here's another place where you can see a measure of grace. You say, I just want to know why so I can deal with it. And God says you can't know the end from the beginning, so you'll trust Him. So you'll trust Him. That's why He does it. It leads you to trust Him, doesn't it? When you don't know the end from the beginning, when you're sitting there in the ash heap and you don't know why this has happened, those questions come up in your mind. Where do you turn? You turn to a philosopher who, 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 who can't tell you anything? You're going, to tell, you're going to turn to Oprah? You're going to turn to Joel Osteen whenever you're, you're sitting in, in, in the midst of a, of a, of a calamity? And he says, it's okay, it's your best life now. You're, you're good. No, you're going to turn to God. And what are you going to do when you turn to God? You're going to have to trust Him. And in those moments, that's when you learn who God really is. And you learn that He's good. And He also does it because you don't want to, He doesn't want us to carry a burden that's too heavy for us. What's the good of, of us knowing if we can't do anything about it? it? It's an extra burden to carry. And even if you did know, or even if I did know, we'd mess it up. I, I can't even remember my anniversary. I locked my keys in my car, and I, and I want to run the universe? I mean, really? If you could pick knowing or not knowing, which would you pick? God says knowing enough to obey Him and to trust Him is His gift but not knowing so much that you'll fail to trust Him is also His gift because knowledge is a burden. Think of it this way. If you knew ten years from now, on November 3rd, 2029, assuming you're going to be alive then, November 3rd, 2029, you knew today that, that your wife was going to be diagnosed with terminal cancer. Could you carry that burden? If your child, you knew your child was going to was was going to fall off a swing and, and break their leg. Would you even let them on swings? You didn't know when, but you knew that was going to happen. You see, it's either crushing or paralyzing. And both keep you from living and both keep you from trusting. You'd be full of anxiety. Is it today? Is it going to happen today? Now multiply that with every hardship and every difficulty you'll ever face in a cursed world. You can't carry that. You see, it's grace, because He can carry that, and He does carry that. And He has the power to work it all together and make it beautiful in His time. Trusting Him is better than knowing and better than being in control yourself. And His gifts are good. His gifts are good. God's grip of time is delightfully good. Look at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing good in them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toils. This is the gift of God. Understanding and believing in God's grip allows a believer to do something an unbeliever can't do. It allows you to rest and enjoy the gifts that God's given you. And here again is another place where the English has inserted better than and assumed that it just dropped out in the Hebrew. The King James gets, gets it right in this one. They added in, actually, the end of chapter, chapter 2, verse 24. I perceive that there is nothing good in them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Because of the fall, we cannot enjoy life as we ought to. But look at the rest of the verse that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to, to man. God gives it to those who, who know him. And Solomon says if you're going to enjoy life, it's a, it's a gift from God, and, and you need to know it comes from him. Now think about it. Solomon has been holding up, the, holding up a, a spotlight on the, on the curse and and the curse in life, it's futile, it feels like breath, it's, it's frustrating, it's meaningless without, without God. You work and somebody else gets your stuff. You gain wisdom and then you, and then you die. And if you focus on all of those things, and only, the only thing that, that comes in this life, you'll find no enjoyment at all. That's what Solomon has been, Solomon's been proving. Now he says, however, if you have God, whose grip is absolute, who appoints every event that takes place under heaven, who promises to make all things beautiful by weaving everything together, yet all His work is eternally complete, then you can trust Him, can't you? And in that trust, you'll find rest, and then you can enjoy the good gifts. You ever wondered why, you know, you look at people that have all kinds of resources and all kinds of things, they have all kinds of toys, or the person that has the perfect job, or the person who has the, the whatever it might be, are they at rest? Hey, they're worrying about trying to keep it. I want to make sure I, 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 I'm, I'm hurrying about to get it, and then once I get it, I, I'm, I'm worried about trying to, to, to keep it from, from flying away. But if you trust in God, if you find trust in Him, even if He's placed resources in your, hand, your hands, then you can rest, and then you can enjoy the good gifts. God's grip is not to paralyze you with fatalism. It's the exact opposite. It frees you to live. You know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Take no thought for your life. God will take thought about that. It releases you from worry. And so, so your heart says, I may not know, but, but I know God does. And it's His gift to His children in a cursed and crooked world. Not only that, he goes further and says, it should lead you to worship Him. Look at number 5, verse 14. God's grip of time is worshipfully durable. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. And there's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. He's designed it this way. 
Solomon says you can't add anything to God's plan and you can't take anything away from it. Now, that's not a statement that proves his grip. I don't know what is. Solomon says we should rejoice in the grip of God because whatever he does is durable. It's permanent. It lasts forever. This is all through the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3, the warning to the church to use God's God's materials to build the church, the gospel and the word. Why does he say that? You remember 1 Corinthians 3? Solomon, uh, Paul says, be a wise master. I'm a wise master builder. I'm a, I'm a smart farmer. He says, don't build the church with things that perish because there's going to be a day of testing and there's wood, hay, and stubble that's going to, going to perish, it's going to burn up, but there are other things that are durable. There are other things that will remain. Solomon's saying the same thing here. Whatever God does lasts forever. And that leads you to worship Him. What does standing back and realizing that God has a grip on everything do? What should it do? Do you understand it rightly? Solomon says it should set you to worship. That's why nothing can be added to it and nothing can take away from it. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. It's durable. And when you realize that, that should worship should lead you to worship or fear Him. You don't stand before a God whose work endures forever. You, you bow before Him. You don't cooperate with the God who is seated in the heavens and needs nothing from you. You fear Him with joyful adoration. This God is both dangerous and He is approachable. He is terrifying. And He is inviting. He leads Moses to take off his sandals and say, I can't do it. And that same God tells Moses, I am the one who is and I've chosen you and I will provide everything that you need to do my work. Solomon says trusting in God's sovereignty when it's rightly understood leads you to worship and it causes you to tremble. It puts fear in your heart. That's why God has designed it that way. It puts fear in your heart for the one who is so great that he needs nothing from me and it puts praise on my lips for the one who saved even even me. And that's why it doesn't lead to fatalism. Because that God you want to serve, you want to obey, and it and it releases you in freedom to obey. And it moves you to tell others about it. This God worthy of worship is the God I want every creature to give Him that worship that's due His, His name. Look at the last one. God's grip of time, finally Solomon says, is unquestionably certain. He would have verse 15. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. 
kind of an awkward construction. That's probably the best way to take it. It's unmistakable what Solomon means by it, though. Solomon says God's grip of time brings certainty. You like certainty? I like certainty. Especially in a world that's unpredictably broken. Can you trust anything in this world? Only God. And that's where Solomon ends this section. While the world around you ebbs and flows, while your money may fly away, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. I am the Lord, I change not. And neither do His plans, and neither do His works. For the Christian, a time for everything brings comfort because it reminds you that God has a plan, even if you don't see it. And for the sinner, it looks like purposeless routine. Sinners look at only what they can see, and it seems boring, purposeless, even unjust. And Solomon says, you look beyond. And when you look beyond, you may not make out everything that God is doing, but you know God is there, and you know He's good, and you know He's doing something, and what He's doing has divine purpose. And it is certain. And it's all contributing to His overall masterpiece, which is beautiful. Because whatever God does lasts forever, including your salvation. (laughs) John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. You can never be lost once you've been found. Isn't that a beautiful truth? And so in a fallen world, Solomon says, lay hold of the greatest tool God has given you to live. Don't get wrapped up around the axles of of understanding it or explaining it. His good grip is there. And you can trust in the one who always does right. You're tired of of trusting in things and people that will let you down? Come to the one who stands forever. The one who declares the end from the beginning and knows everything in between. Don't you bow your heads?